If you would, go ahead and turn over to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. How's that? How's that? There we go. I'll talk loud, regardless of which microphone it's hitting. Should be good. All right, we'll talk loud. Um, Andy Russell pointed out to me that he was present for my first sermon 23 years ago, <laughs> and I told him he had time to get over to Trader's Point or something if he wanted. It was about 12 minutes long, and I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, First uh, Samuel 15, if you guys have heard anything from me for the last couple of weeks, you know that Egypt and Exodus have been on my mind, and it has been, uh, it's been refreshing to study a different portion of the Word. So 1 Samuel 15 is where we'll be studying from primarily the story of King Saul and the prophet Samuel. I don't know if we're allowed to have favorite portions of scriptures, you know, uh, the stories surrounding David and and his lifetime leading up to his kingship are are some of my favorites. And there's a lot of lessons to learn um, from that man of faith, both in the things he did well and the mistakes that he made. And there are plenty of lessons to learn about the circumstances leading up to his kingship in the stories of King Saul. He was not a, uh, an evil man. He did some good things for Israel. But he certainly made some, some significant, serious mistakes when it came to his relationship with God and his leadership of the people. There's a lesson here in 1 Samuel 15 that someone shared with me uh, years ago, and it really struck me as, as incredibly powerful and applicable. I saw myself in these characters. There's a stark contrast here made between King Saul and the prophet Samuel. Between the behavior of this faithless king and this righteous man. And a contrast made between how these two men chose to see and respond to sin. Did they see it for what it really was and how did they respond? So let's start by reading the first nine verses here of 1 Samuel 15. It says that Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tilium, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when you came up when they came up out of Egypt. 
So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Hivilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. God gave very clear instructions to King Ahab. It was actually fairly simple. It was harsh. It was God's judgment on these people, and we'll talk about why that was, but the instructions were fairly clear. Destroy everything. Don't leave anything. And there had been times in some of the battles that they had had where God allowed them to leave some things, to take the spoils of the war, but here he said, not this time. The sin of these people demands this kind of judgment. And he explains why. He references what happened back in Exodus chapter 17. I can't escape Egypt, can I? It's everywhere. Exodus 17, Amalek came and attacked Israel, kind of took them from behind when they were not ready. It was really kind of a cheap shot. And this was a battle where, if you remember, when Moses held up his arms, they had victory, but his arms got tired. And so Joshua, I'm sorry, and Aaron and Hur supported his arms, and through the Lord's power, they had victory over Amalek. But God said in Exodus 17 and verse 14, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Because of what they had done to God's special chosen people, God said, I'm going to remember, and I want you to make sure Joshua remembers that a time is going to come where I'm going to destroy them. Now is that time. God told Saul to fulfill this judgment. He's using, trying to use King Saul to accomplish his purpose. The instructions were simple, but they did not obey. They left King Agag alive, as well as the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatted calves, and lambs, and all that was good. It wasn't like they just let a couple of things slip through. All the good stuff they kept, and all the despised and worthless things they destroyed. Saul, as the leader of this campaign, he was the one to allow this choice, sinned by not doing as the Lord instructed. And in a way, you can view King Agag as a physical representation of King Saul's sin. The fact that he was alive after the battle was evidence that he had not followed God's command. Did he obey? Look over here. King King Agag is alive. The answer was no. He did not obey. Saul was keeping alive and leading around proof of his disobedience. So how does he respond? Let's keep reading here, starting in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, 
for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. He couldn't be bothered to actually do what God said, but he had plenty of time to set up a monument for himself. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, which is sarcasm, he just set up a monument to himself, you are not, uh, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to, to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore and Samuel said to, to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow down before the Lord your God. There's a lot to get into. It's a larger chunk of text here. Let's go through Saul's response here. Because he tries various tactics. At first, in verse 13, Saul simply denies that there's a problem at all. He says in verse 13, Blessed be you to the Lord, I've performed the commandment of the Lord. Nothing to see here. Everything's fine. We're all good. Have you ever found yourself doing this? Because I sure have. 
you know there's a problem. You know, I know that what I've done is not pleasing to God. But if I don't think about it, nobody brings it up, maybe God will notice. And maybe it's either because our conscience has become so dull that perhaps we don't even recognize that we've done wrong. Or, as more often than not, we attempt to deceive ourselves. We, we give ourselves enough reasons why maybe it's not as bad. It is obedience, right? Saul is saying, I obeyed. You know, I obeyed 80%. Like, sure, that's obey. And we do these things in our minds to try to make the problem go away. And we assume, I assume, that if it's not that big of a deal in my mind, it must not be that big of a deal in God's mind. God sees right through this. Samuel saw right through this. What is this noise that I hear then? You can't hide. You can't hide the noise that those types of animals would make in that quantity. What am I, what am I hearing then? I don't hear obedience. Samuel confronts him with his sin, so Saul tries something else. In verse 14, he tries to explain away why he disobeyed. Okay, okay, you got me. I didn't do what I was supposed to do, but here's the rationale that I used. In verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 15, he says, They brought them from the Amalekites, we spared the sheep and the oxen, and we did it so that we can worship God. God wants our worship, right? Think of all the sacrifices we could give to God. Isn't this wonderful? And, and they did this so that we could, we could bless God. He basically says, sure, God said this, but we thought of something better. We had a better idea. We wanted to use these animals and sacrifice to the Lord. So how many times have we heard ourselves say that? I know that's what God said, but I think, I feel, it makes sense to me. Does God like worship? Yes. Did God want volunteer offerings to him? Absolutely. They're called free will offerings, and the people were encouraged to do that. But Samuel's response in verse 22 says, you, you're missing it here. You can't disregard God in order to glorify him. You can't ignore him in order to make him happy. He said to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen, to listen is better than any kind of animal. And he calls it for what it is, Samuel does. He calls it in verse 23, rebellion. This isn't just that you forgot to do something. Rebellion is a word. This, you are in direct opposition to God's objective here. You are fighting against him. And this is, this is just like divination. This is like you are worshiping evil spirits. I know what God says, but I, I think, I feel, I want. We see this throughout our world, don't we? 
We see it in our own lives. We see it in in other groups. Maybe we see it in our own, perhaps. Where God, His church, His mission, His worship, turns into something very different than what He intended it to be. Very different than what we see the church look like and act like in the first century. Because we think we can improve upon it. I know that worked back then, but let me tell you what works now. I know that's how they worshipped back then, but we think we can add a little bit here and add a little bit here. I know these are the examples that were given, but now we use the church, or perhaps some use the church, as more of a community center, right? We're trying to benefit people. That's a good thing, right? So we're going to create programs and we're going to do these things because people are important and we love people. And that's absolutely right. But is that what God said he wanted his church to be? Is that their mission? Is it good to benefit people? Absolutely. Do it. Overflow in that. But we tell God, I know you wanted your church to be involved in this, but I think. When we obey God, most of the way, are we obeying God? I've had conversations with my kids, because my parents had conversations with me, (laughs) that if I tell you to do something, and you do most of it, that that's not, that's not acceptable. We think that we understand better the intent of the command, and make additional exemptions to the rule that God does not make. So that's what Saul attempted to do here. I assume, Saul said, that you love worship above all else. So I'm going to give it to you. Well, I know, we might say, that God says, flee youthful lusts. Run away from them. Have nothing to do with them. But that sex scene in that movie wasn't that long. It didn't show that much. didn't have that much of an effect. I know he says flee, but, you know, I wasn't there that long. I know God says to be self-controlled and be sober-minded. So as long as I stay under the legal limit determined by the state, I can still eat and drink things that dull my senses and intoxicate me. I know God said sober-minded, but my state says that sober-minded starts here. And so I'll trust the state's definition of that. I know God says to love and pray for my enemies, but you don't know what that person's done to me. So I'm, uh, I'm going to forgive them. I'm just not going to talk to him anymore. Jesus said, love and pray for those people. And, and we presume. It's the accusation given to Saul in verse 23. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. We presume to know what God intended. And we presume that our, our rationale is is better than his. God's instructions aren't, as the pirates might say in Pirates of the Caribbean, more like actual guidelines, right? They're not suggestions. We don't get to negotiate with him. And God made very clear to Saul at the very beginning why Saul was to do this. What He reminded them what Am- Amalek had done. Right? This wasn't a vindictive God who just hates people. 
No, there's a justice that needed to be carried out, and he made Saul understand what that was. And this mission wasn't about benefiting Israel or gathering more offerings to the Lord, and those are good things. It was about punishing Amalek. That was God's will. It was God's intention. So Saul tries something else. Saul points the finger and attempts to shift the blame to someone else. So first he pretends like there's no problem at all. Then he says, okay, there is a problem, but it's not really a problem because it's so cool that I did this for you. And then he says, okay, actually, there is a problem. It is serious. And they did it. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, he says. I have gone on the mission. But the people... And he does what Adam did at the very beginning when sin was first introduced. Remember what Adam did? God, the woman that you gave me. I mean, he throws God under the bus. Yeah, it's a big deal. I sinned, absolutely. But honestly, you're responsible, God, because you made her and she made me. You know, she forced me to it. One of my brothers, I won't name who, used the excuse once on our parents, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. And my parents went, no, no, nice try. This tactic is as old as mankind itself, and yet we still try it, don't we? They just made me so angry. They're stressing me out. My boss is so unreasonable. My spouse is driving me crazy. And we say, that's why, God, I chose to do these things I'm not supposed to do. And I'm, I'm just as guilty. But Samuel sees right through that as well. He doesn't buy it. He doesn't accept it. So Saul tries one more thing. In verse 24... And by itself, we've heard things like this before. People have been confronted with their sins. Saul says, I've sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. That is exactly what he should have said, right? But there's something about it. It's hard to read the inflection of voice. It's hard to read the context. But there's something about his response that Samuel is not buying. He can detect the insincerity there. And he says, I'm not going to return with you. I'm not going to return with you. For you've rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Saul doesn't try to, uh, he doesn't try to further explain his, his genuineness. Maybe Samuel's misunderstood him, but you've got to believe me. I am really sorry. Let me show you. I'll, I'll do these things. Saul doesn't try that. He tries to use force. Samuel's ready to leave, and Saul is desperate. He grabs him and tears his cloak. This is not the sign of a penitent sinner. This is a sign of someone who... I. I'm going to make this work the way I want to make this work. And really, we see his heart again in verse 30. This is actually what Saul is after. He says, I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. 
he is not really concerned with his standing before God. He's concerned, he's concerned with his standing before people. So I'm going to say I'm sorry because I don't want the people to think badly of me, said the guy who built a monument to himself. How many of us are guilty of this? We say sorry after people find out, and we don't want more people to find out. And we sin, and we feel bad for the sin, but we mostly feel bad for us because of the sin. We don't feel bad because of who, who we've sinned against, right? We've hurt him. We, we've opposed him. We've, we've broken his heart. And that should be, that should have been Saul's response. What have I done to my God? How do I make this right? Instead... He wants to save face and find approval. Passages like 2 Corinthians 7 tell us what true godly sorrow looks like. What does it look like? It's not, you know, alligator tears, crocodile tears. What's the difference? It's not this fake sorrow, I'm so sad that I got caught. But 2 Corinthians 7 says godly sorrow produces evidence of repentance, right? So we feel bad, and we are then motivated to do what, what God wants us to do to make it right, to come to him and ask for forgiveness, receive the, the grace and the mercy that we need from him, without which we'll be lost, and we're willing to do whatever we can do to, to help fix this thing that we've broken. That's what godly sorrow is supposed to look like. It's not, as surely I was not the only child to, to try this, where our parents kind of force us into, you know, say you're sorry, sorry. And then I want to keep going, you know, like, that's, we all know, that's not, that's not repentance. Sorry is, and we, we ask our kids, what does sorry mean? Sorry means I won't do it again. I'm sorry for, you know, for doing it. It was wrong for me. But it's not this, you know, I just want to say it, say the words so that I can get back to doing what I want to do. And sometimes, I think what the hope of, of Saul was, that he wanted to look around and see if he could find others to reinforce what he was doing, right? I want you, Samuel, to take me before the people and show them that you and I are cool. Which means, I'm cool with God, right? So if I can get enough people to make it seem like I'm cool, I'm good, then that makes the sin okay, Saul was not willing to admit his wrongdoing. He was not willing to do what was necessary to correct it and confront it. His sin was still alive, both in his heart and represented in King Agag, this man who should not have been there. So how does Samuel respond? Samuel responds in verse 31. So again, Saul is asking him, please come back with me. Come back with me and help me save face. Samuel, in verse 31, turned back after Saul and bowed before the Lord. He's not concerned about what the people think right now. He's bowing himself before the Lord. And he says, in verse 32, Bring me here Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. 
Some uh, translations say haltingly. In his mind, he says, surely the bitterness of death is past. I'm not sure why I'm coming before Samuel, but Agag seems to think, okay, it wasn't looking too good for me here, but something's happening, and I I think it's going to be all right. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Samuel returned with Saul. It was not to condone his behavior. It was to finish the job, to fulfill the will of the Lord. Samuel would ensure that the will of God was fulfilled, whether by the king's hand, and the king was not willing to do it, or by his own. So Agag Agag saw the prophet, thought things were great. Samuel pulls out a sword. And there's no beating around the bush here. This is graphic. He hacked him to pieces. This was incredibly violent, but here is where we make our spiritual parallel. Saul's response to sin was to deny it, to explain it away, attempt to shift the blame, insincerely apologize, to find some kind of approval. Samuel responds to sin for seeing it for what it is. It is an affront to God. It is rebellion. It is an insult to God's holiness. And so he puts an end to it. He takes care of it. He recognized that leaving Agag alive, what it meant, and so he hacked him to pieces. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. In a very real sense, this is what we are commanded to do with our sin. Colossians chapter 3 Starting in verse 1, it says that if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, even evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul wants them to understand these things that I'm, I'm reminding you of, these things that you used to partake of, these earthly things, this is why the wrath of God is coming. He's coming in justice to do to those who have opposed him what he did to Amalek. And so Paul, you can hear the urgency in his voice. He's like, get 
Get rid of these things. Put them to death. Have nothing to do with them. God is coming, and, and we want to be on his side. But he takes it even a step further in Romans chapter 6. Because he talks about putting that old man off. He talks about putting him to death. But he uses even a, a different illustration, a more extreme illustration. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What kind of death did Jesus die? A painful, agonizing, humiliating kind of a death. And he said, you've been baptized into that. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. He said, look, that old man, that person you used to be, crucify them. And through the waters of baptism, God promises to do that for us. I'm going to take that old man, and I'm not just going to ask him to leave and never come back. It is going to be a thorough, complete putting to death of, of that part of us. And he offers us, instead, it's not just dying and being buried. Thank God, it's being raised. And the man that comes up, the person that comes up is renewed and refreshed and living. And Jesus taught these same things. I appreciate Chris and his mention of the, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus taught... To take care of our standing with God, we need to be willing to do some extreme things. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If there are relationships in your life that are, are hindering your walk with God, we need to be willing to do severe surgery. And God says it's, it's better, Jesus said, it's better to enter into heaven missing a limb or two, or a relationship, or a dream or two, than to have everything you've always wanted and experience eternal torment. So we've, got to be, we've got to be willing to do the hard stuff. And it's not, um, it's not simply giving, giving our old man that, that painless injection that's going to kind of slowly put him to sleep. It is crucifying him. It's going to hurt. It's going to take sacrifice. But here's the good news. And I want to make sure we emphasize this. It is not something we do all by ourselves. It is not a matter of, if I can just get enough self-will, I'll stop doing all those evil things, and I will make myself right with God. It's impossible. It's impossible. It is not a reliance on our own self-righteousness. I've done the things, therefore God owes me. That's not it. That's not the gospel. Even David... 
David, the man who would replace Saul, a man described as a man after God's own heart, even he sinned. And when he did, he acknowledged to God, to the prophet Nathan, the seriousness of this thing, begged for forgiveness, accepted the heartbreaking consequences for it, and and repented to God. And God was willing to forgive. There wasn't enough that David could do to make God go, okay, yeah, you've done those things, so now I owe you forgiveness. That's not how it worked. But David's penitent heart, his willingness to do the hard things, God said, I'll, I'll cover the rest. I've got you. One more passage here in 1 John chapter 1. This is an interesting study. And Karen and I have been talking about it a lot over the last few weeks and months. We've We've had studies with some of, of you all. Where's the balance? How, how do you describe our salvation? Is it that I went to, to work and I punched the clock, I earned the paycheck, and God has given me salvation? That's not it. That's not the gospel. Is it that I sat and just let God's grace wash over me, and he just poured it on me, and I just said thank you? The Bible teaches us that there are expectations from God. He's got this offer for us that we do not deserve and we will never earn. We're never going to earn that paycheck. But he makes known to us what he wants from us. In 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Uh, I'm sorry, let's start in verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you. Nope, I'm getting ahead. That's chapter 2. Sorry. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, if we follow his example, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I'm going to pause right there for a moment and make a point. That's the objective. That's the objective. The goal is, the standard is, what does the Bible say? Holy as he is holy. And it's up here, and it's impossible. (laughs) But that's the standard. And we don't lower the standard because it's impossible. We don't say, I'm never going to do that, so I'm just going to ignore it. Holy. As he is holy, he says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the goal. That's the objective. Don't sin. All right, now stand and sing. No. Thank God that this verse continues and says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, 
but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. He says, look, try to do this. This is God's standard. And I know, God says, you're not going to reach it all the time. Not even close. Try. And the good news is, I'm here to, to take you the rest of the way. I am here to help you. You're going to fall. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to rebel against me. And thank God, if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I love that last song that we sung. That we sung. That God is going to look at us on the day of judgment and he's going to see us through the blood of his son. Because if he saw us for who we really were all by ourselves, we'd be ruined. We'd be, we'd be done. But he's going to see us through the blood of his son and say, that one's mine. How do we get in that? How do we have fellowship with him? How do we enjoy the blessings of that blood, that forgiveness? And that grace. John says here, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. And it's not a checklist. As long as you fill in the blanks, I'll pay your paycheck. But he says, if you love me, Jesus says, you'll you'll do what I say. You'll follow me. You'll submit to me. Not some of the way, all of the way. And I'm going to give you something that you do not deserve. So when I've read the story of Saul and I've read the story of Samuel, I've seen myself in both characters. Have you? I've probably seen myself in Saul's sandals more often than I would like. Where I try to make sin no big deal. Where I try to shove it off on somebody else. I try to explain away and use my limited, very limited human reasoning. And instead, I just need to do what he says. Trust him. And when I fail, and I will, trust him that he'll pick me up, he'll cover that sin, and he'll help me. That's the offer. That's the gracious invitation that's being offered this morning and every day. And if that has has struck you, if that's something you want to take advantage of, the blood is available. Through the waters of baptism, we're here to help you and and encourage you um, as we help each other. Get through this and strive to be holy as he is holy. If you have any needs this morning, we pray that you'd come forward as we stand and sing. Christ lives.